Welcome back to our final episode of this Monday re-release series, Emerging Therapies for Moderate to Severe Atopic Dermatitis in Children. This is the final episode in the series that was supported by Pfizer. Hello, and welcome back to the final installment of our series on systemic therapies for atopic dermatitis in children. Today's episode continues our focus on the patient perspective with special guests Wendy Smith-Bogoka from the National Eczema Association and Corey Kaposa from Global Parents for Eczema Research. This session is moderated by Dr. Don Davis from the Mayo Clinic. If you haven't listened to our previous episodes on this topic, feel free to go back anytime to iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Welcome to the PEDRA Virtual Education and Events Series. My name is Dawn Davis, and I'm a pediatric dermatologist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And it's my privilege to be part of the panel for part six of our lecture series on emerging therapies for the care of moderate to severe atopic dermatitis in children. Our expert panelists with us tonight include my colleague and friend, Dr. Larry Eichenfeld of Rady Children's Hospital at UCSD who is not only the Director of Pediatric Dermatology, but also Vice Chair of the Department. Larry, would you like to say hello? Hi, everyone. Glad to be part of this. And also his colleague in crime, Dr. Winnis Tom, who's also a Pediatric Dermatologist at UCSD and the Fellowship Director for Pediatric Dermatology. Welcome, Winnis. I'm glad you're here. Hi. Great to be a part of this. Thank you to everyone for joining. And then, of course, no panel would be complete without our allergy friend and expert, Dr. Bob Gang, who also practices pediatric allergy at Rady Children's Hospital, UCSD. Bob, welcome. I'm so glad to see you. Thank you so much. Hi, everyone. But foremost, I'm privileged to introduce our two guest stars and celebrities in the patient advocacy space for atopic dermatitis. And I just want to thank each of them for taking time to educate us providers on the importance of patient advocacy and teach us our gaps and uh, blind spots with regards to how we can be better uh, advocates for our patients and family units. And that would be Wendy Smith-Bogolka, who is the Vice President of Scientific and Clinical Affairs at the National Eczema Association. So welcome, Wendy. Thank you for that kind introduction, Don. Don't think I've ever been referred to as a celebrity before. That's a first, but my pleasure to be here. Well, you, you are a patient advocacy celebrity. <laughs> and also on the red carpet with you is our colleague and friend, uh, Ms. Corey Kaposa, who is the founder and the executive director of the Global Parents for Eczema Research Foundation. So welcome, Corey. So much for the invitation. And yes, I'm, I'm also basking in the glow of, of stardom here. So appreciate, appreciate that term. Well, tonight we'll venture through some patient care and advocacy questions. We'll talk about the practicalities of championing for patient advocacy groups and how to connect with them. And we'll end the discussion on the importance of research and how to get connected for re with research because as we know, it's not just about patient care, but also about advocacy, empowerment, education, research in the future. Firstly, we'll just open up with a couple of general questions and maybe we'll just alternate uh, who goes first. Wendy, I'll, I'll pick on you first. Can you tell us, in general, what topics regarding atopic dermatitis you wish that providers would discuss with patients and their family members that are not necessarily part of the average provider or dermatologist or allergist office visit with eczema? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. And uh, so many things that, that could be talked about 
Um, but what I guess I can say anecdotally, what we've heard from our um, patient community and caregiver community is that um, a couple of things. One is that eczema can be a longer journey than they might like, you know, that it's something that is going to have a lot of potential trial and error, that there might need to be a lot of different strategies that they're going to have to potentially use over the course of managing this disease uh, for many over the course of a lifetime. Um, and for many, that's not necessarily widely appreciated or, or understood at the level that they might need to know early on in their disease. And so that can breed a lot of frustration, a lot of um, concerns for how well their disease is actually being managed and can lead people to actually like move from provider to provider because they're feeling like they're not getting the whole picture or they're not necessarily getting um, the best care, you know, even though they very well may be. Um, and then the other part of it is that there's only so much that can happen in the context of a doctor's office. And one of the things we also hear a lot from our patient community is that, you know, I wish we had found Nia sooner. And I'm sure Corey hears something very similar about other support resources that are out there. And so just recognizing that um, there's a lot that happens in the, con in the uh, sort of constellation of, of eczema over the course of a lifetime and that there's a lot of different things that probably need to be discussed. One office visit certainly is not going to be able to cover it all. And so if I had to pick two, those would probably be the ones I would, I would suggest from, from the top. So we need to encourage our patients to understand that eczema care is a marathon and not a sprint. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Corey, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I agree with what Wendy said. A couple other additional things. Um, one is that um, there's no silver bullet and that eczema is highly variable from person to person. And so unfortunately, there isn't usually a one-size-fits-all solution for people. And that, in fact, if your neighbor found something that worked great for them, oftentimes it doesn't work for you. And just to understand that variability and the idea that we're kind of on the cusp of figuring out these different types of eczema and how to use a more precise approach in the future with something like personalized medicine. Um, and then the second thing is, I know this is a pie in the sky wish in some ways, but just to ask about um, beyond the signs and symptoms, some of the psychosocial impacts that this condition has on patients and families and actually on caregivers, you know, um, I can appreciate that a provider might not want to open up that can of worms in a 15 minute visit um, when you're already struggling to just cover the basics. But, you know, this is uh, a condition that really um, is difficult for caregivers, especially young children. They're not sleeping, um, depression, anxiety, sky high feelings of um, anxiety and um, isolation. And so, you know, this is a, a wish list item, but to really start to talk about those things and normalize those things for patients and families. Do you think it would be helpful for providers to give a corollary disease impression to a, a family unit? For example, I find eczema patients um, struggle or that this becomes a family unit concern and is a lifelong thing such as diabetes or having a patient with a seizure disorder or um, having somebody with asthma. Do you feel giving it a different disease perspective helps with that per impression or do you feel like it uh, de-emphasizes the importance of eczema and patronizes it? I think it would be a huge help. I think the, the impression out there in the world, perhaps beyond the specialist visit, is that eczema is a baby rash, it's a superficial skin condition, and so what's the big deal? And so patients and caregivers, caregivers internalize that and, and live with that, that 
why is this such a big deal for me when everyone else is telling me this is a, a minor skin condition? So to call it something like, you know, diabetes or asthma or some of these other serious conditions of childhood, I think would be, um, it would be sort of like transformative for, for families. I think that's a great idea. What are the most important things that can pr providers can do during the clinic visit to make sure that the family unit and or the patient based on their age feels educated and empowered because the 15 minute visit is a challenge. And even if you followed up all the time with your dermatologist or allergist, um, you know, it, it requires some homework. How can we help make sure that the patient feels like they have the resources they need? I think if you have to hit one thing in that visit um, to empower or inform a patient, it would probably be to take the time to discuss risks and benefits of treatment. Um, because when patients and families don't have that information, they're worried about the treatment, they're scared of the treatment, and we see really low um, adherence, in, especially in, um, in children. So our own research on this topic found about 50% was about what um, the type of adherence that we were seeing in our population of caregivers. But I think if uh, there's the time taken to really walk through the risks and benefits and the risks of not treating this condition, that we would see higher um, use of recommended treatments. And so that would be the thing that I would probably recommend focusing on the most. I think providers make a lot of assumptions about noncompliance as to why it occurs. I, I think we're aware that it is a common phenomenon. And can you clarify from your research if you could articulate the top reasons that patients are non-compliant? Because I think what providers assume and what happens in reality often don't match. <laughs> sure. So we actually published an article on this topic using uh, survey data from caregivers. Um, and what we found is that, uh, you know, we're talking about young children in a lot of cases, and we're talking about um, treatments that have a lot of highly publicized side effects. And so there's this trade-off between risks and benefits that happens. And when the perceived risks are really large in, in the mind of the caregiver, um, you're gonna see compliance drop. And, and you know, also at the same time, if they're not seeing a benefit from that treatment, you're gonna see compliance drop. So um, you know, I think uh, really taking that time to educate about what those risks and benefits are so that uh, parents can make um, an informed decision and stick with treatments if they feel like that's uh, an intelligent choice would go a long way. Um, I think I think also just these are these are a lot of times really complicated regimens. Like I remember getting from my physician uh, a list of you know five prescription topicals. They were all different percentages, and I was supposed to step up and step down here, but not there. And uh, it's hard, um, you know, even people who are familiar with medicine and so on, it's hard to follow these instructions. And so we need support. We need help in deciphering that and action plan, you know, any tools that we can give patients to really get through that. You know, you're, you're, you're going on very little sleep and it doesn't make any sense. Uh, these names are confusing. So I think just understanding that, even though this could be the language that you speak in the clinic or that's very familiar to you as a physician, it's super confusing to, to patients and families a lot of times. Thanks, that's very helpful. Wendy, your insight? Yeah, well, I will just piggyback on uh, what Corey said uh, with the action plan, because that was one of the suggestions that I would have had as well, is that, you know, this is a, can be a very complex disease to manage. There's a lot of different variables, a lot of different 
um, approaches that can be utilized and, and a lot of information that patients and caregivers have to absorb when they're in, sitting there in front of you and, and probably some of it lands when they're sitting there because they're thinking about many other things. And some of it may not just because there's worry and anxiety and everything else that, that normally goes in and dealing with a condition that can be very, very serious and significantly impacting their lives. Um, and so having that action plan when they leave really does give, you know, sort of a foothold and a reminder of like, okay, you know, we can, this is what I do here. This is where I do when I might do this. This is when I might have to call the doctor or something. So it gives you that, that thread of connectivity and sense of, you know, you're not necessarily in this alone. You have this, you know, additional resource available to you that you can look back on and reference and sure potentially also help with compliance to Corey's first point, you know, giving visual descriptions about how much to apply and when to apply and where to apply, you know, that hopefully could go a long way. But, you know, I think taking it back to the fundamental word that you raised there, John, was about empowerment. And empowerment, first of all, comes from being listened to and being, you know, thought of as a partner in these conversations, you know, about care. And so, you know, just taking it back, not to when they leave the office, but while they're actually in the context of the office visit, you know, really engaging in that shared decision-making conversation, understanding what questions they have. Corey raised a great one about risks and benefits. I'm certain that there's many others that you know, patients and caregivers bring to you every day, you know, finding out what's important to them, what's going to keep them awake at night, um, and, and what is going to help give them the best sense of confidence and, and agreement that this is the path in terms of care that they want to walk now, given those, all of those different trade-offs. Um, so, you know, taking it back to that higher level of beginning with them engaging as a partner first and foremost. So, Wendy, we do a, a good job as providers educating our patients about the side effects of medicines and the potential options that would be reasonable for the patient. What are the other factors that you feel affect the uh, choice of what a patient would like to choose, which treatment option they choose? Is it all down to cost? Is it palatability? Is it the way it smells? Is it how easy the pharmacy can get it? Um, you know, if they're empowered about side effects, all things being equal, what are the other factors that really determine why patients choose one option over another? Sure. And, and I think to come back to Corey's point early on is that it isn't a one size fits all. I think that's kind of part of the conversation is to understand what is going to be most important for a patient at that particular point in time, and maybe even at different points in time, you know, recognizing that, you know, COVID as an example has brought a whole host of new considerations where people have had changes in insurance, for example, maybe now cost is a more important consideration for them than it might not have been in the past. Um, convenience of use, how long is it gonna take me to use this medication daily or, or weekly or however often I would have to take it? Um, if it's a topical, is it something I have to apply over large parts of my body or is it something that's going to be, you know, more easily applied to discrete areas where it maybe wouldn't interfere with clothing or, or other activities that I'm going to be doing. So I think there's a lot of different considerations that go into why someone would choose a particular course, but I think it is all about understanding what is important to a particular individual rather than, you know, create, you know, kind of creating broad strokes that are applicable to everybody. That's very helpful. Um, providers often wonder because um, doctor's offices and also patient advocacy groups try to make different learning materials for patients and their families. Pamphlets, online websites, educational videos, um, instruction sheets, action plans. Corey, what are your thoughts on which educational tools are most effective or most highly utilized from patients? Yeah, so there again, I think there's 
a, a variety of options out there and a variety of uh, preferences by families and patients as well. And we're really fortunate that there's been so much growth in resources in recent years. I mean, that's really been a huge change. We see a really great webpage from um, the American Academy of Pediatrics now with um, great resources for eczema. The NEA has a ton of resources. Um, there's a host of global patient groups as well, including ours, that offer resources. And then for patients and families that want more in-depth kind of high-touch support, um, there's programs like ours where we offer a peer-to-peer -peer matching program where we match a parent with another parent um, that's been perhaps on the eczema journey a little longer and they're able to provide mentoring and support and answering questions one-on-one -on -one with parents. So I think all of those things are, are great options, you know, science-based, evidence-based options. Um, and we're able to have a menu of, of different choices for patients and parents now, which is really wonderful. Yeah, Wendy, any additional thoughts on that? Well, I would just agree with Corey. I think it's it's really impressive the you know diversity of the resources that are out there. You know, but one of the other things I think that is important is that what Corey hit on was that you know that evidence based information. You know, if there are really trusted sources that you all recommend to give people as references, you know, there there we live in the age now of like Google Doc and and all other kinds of things, and so it's important that we're we're kind of directing people to the best information. You know, that has been. Um, really undergone, you know, the, the right level of scrutiny, has had the right level of scientific support behind it so that we're, you know, really providing people with a strong foundation, which they can then add to as they, you know, learn more about the disease. But in terms of understanding, you know, some foundational pieces, it's really helpful to, you know, provide that guidance. And coming back to that idea of, an, you know, an action plan, you know, that's where even as you're you know, potentially um, someone's leaving an office visit and has an office summary, if there's a way in the ele electronic medical record to like flag some things that you would like them to follow up. And if patients read, you know, their, their summary from their office visit and have a few things that they can, you know, directly say, oh, I should go look at this website or I should look at this pamphlet, that can be a great starting point. Good. So since we have you two here as patient advocacy experts, um, let's turn the conversation that direction. What is the most challenging thing as patient advocacy experts for you to communicate to uh, pro provider groups about how to connect patients to patient advocacy and make that work for them? I don't know if it's so much the challenging thing, uh, challenging to, con um, to have providers, uh, or, or sorry, have patients connect uh, to patient advocacy groups, but I think that comes back to the point that I raised before is that, you know, we have heard anecdotally that, you know, I wish we had found some of these resources sooner. And so it really does um, open a pathway for, you know, providers to, hear, to, to, share, to sort of share this information with their patients, you know, when they're there at the point of care um, and really put them on the path towards, you know, providing that larger support network that can um, really help address some of that and provide supplemental care, you know, and support for, uh, the time when they're not in the office with you, which is going to be, you know, probably the majority of the time. Yeah, um, and so, right. And, and so this is where, you know, physicians, if you can engage with our organization or with Corey's, you know, you can be, you know, receiving sort of the information that we have on a regular basis. And then by extension, you know, be able to talk to your patients about what is available to them in various ways. Yeah, I mean, I, I really see providers and patient advocacy groups as strong allies. I think, I think we see the same suffering. I mean, we're both kind of on the front lines talking to families and we know 
um, the true story of kind of eczema and how it impacts people. And so I think we're, we're very much aligned in the sense that we have the same mission of trying to dispel this myth um, that eczema is a minor skin condition. Um, so I think we are very much partners on that front. And then also, you know, I think we can support patients outside the clinical setting. As Wendy mentioned, we're equipped to do that. That's part of our, our mission. And then also like groups with art like ours um, that are really focused on research. Like we try to keep channels open with providers um, to pursue research studies and ideas and, and to partner on shaping those, partner on recruiting for those if they're topics that are really high priority to patients and families. So I think there's also an opportunity to be thinking through, um, you know, potential clinical trials or topics that often, those ideas often arise from talking to patients or um, having conversations with families. So um, we both have the advantage of kind of being in the mix on that and being able to come up with some really good ideas. Thanks. Larry, do you wanna um, ask your question about messaging? As a provider who you know, sees a whole range of severity of eczema patients, uh, who they, they, people come in with very varying experiences prior to coming to the specialist and very different perspectives on the disease. And, you know, we work really hard to sort of move them to a modern sensibility about the disease, both recognizing the impact, because sometimes the families just, they don't want to deal with the impact, so they sort of smudge it over, um, as well as, you know, our, you know, increasing our material for treatment. But, but one of my, my question is, how important is the early messaging that goes on in the primary care visits. Um, it, it's my sense that that really it feeds a lot of this. So Corey, I mean, your paper says, you know, 45% of patients don't follow the physician advice. That's like not a success from a provider standpoint, you know, for a group of people. So I, I just wonder if, 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 if the early messaging is important. Um, uh, both in terms of establishing what might be safe uses of medicine as well as an expected course. Because I think that part of the problem is signaling that, oh, this will go away in a few years and then it doesn't. And partially there, the uh, establishment of fear towards any medicine is something that may be happening early on. But. Yeah, I think that would be tremendously helpful. I think that um, often, you know, probably by the time they get to you, Dr. Eichenfeld, these patients have been qu on quite a journey with it and have seen quite a few doctors. And, um, you know, sometimes at the pediatrician level, like, you know, they're not, they're not eczema experts and um, they don't necessarily get that, as you call the modern sort of uh, primer or whatever on, on the condition. So, uh, you know, educating early and often in that primary care setting would go a long way. Um, and, I, and I also just want to say something else, which is a little bit off topic, but um, I don't remember ever being asked, like when my son was in the worst of his eczema, severe, severe, you know, not sleeping, itching all the time, like a lot of these kids are, you know, you're kind of a basket case and you're tired and you're kind of emotionally raw, but I don't remember anyone ever asking me about that, nor should they actually, because my son's pediatrician is not my doctor. Um, you know, it's not an adult's doctor, um, I, I suppose. So I, I guess just some recognition, um, I'm not sure where that needs to occur, but yeah, just uh, some recognition early on that this is gonna take a family effort, that it's going to impact the caregiver as well as the child. It's gonna be hard, it's gonna be long, it's chronic, it's relapsing, all of those things I think would really help families. Um, 
with the long journey that it is. Uh, well, I would add that, you know, I, I think your points are really important, Corey, in that uh, we, we know that a lot of patients, when they first start on their eczema journey, are coming into the system, you know, at various points. They're not starting at the dermatologist. They're not starting at the specialist level. They're coming in at primary care, whether that be pediatrician or perhaps their internist. And so, um, you know, it is incredibly important to begin, you know, to make sure that all of those providers are educated on what's the most important pieces of information to share with patients at, at that particular point in time, you know, it, um, is it something that they will outgrow that may happen for some, but for others that may be, you know, not possible. Uh, just to give that that context, because um, what you said, Corey, about people moving, having multiple providers by the time they potentially get to a specialist is very true. We, we have survey data that shows that as well. People have upwards of five, six providers before they get to a specialist that they're comfortable with or a doctor that they're comfortable with. Um, and so, you know, it's incredibly important to begin that. And that's why, you know, at me, I think we're really proud of our, what we call our QC initiative. That's our Coalition United for Better Eczema Care, where it really is bringing that um, multidisciplinary group together to make sure that, you know, we're, we're trying to get all the special or the, all the physicians and healthcare providers together that could be seeing eczema patients um, to give them the same level of resources and information to then go out and hopefully uh, provide really strong care and, and refer as necessary for patients that need more. Now, Wendy, when I was um, giving some QC lectures, I remember, if I remember correctly, the data showed that the average patient needs a minimum of four visits before they feel educated at a baseline level. And that is not what the patient expects and probably not what the average primary care provider expects. <laughs> but it's not surprising to specialists. Yeah. Is that correct? Does my yeah, I, think so. correct? I think so. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's a lot, as we talked about already, you know, there's just so much to understand here and, and try to transmit in a way that can be digestible and meaningful and, and understanding what the pathway is that you're going to have to walk here. And so it's, it's not surprising that it takes, you know, time for that to settle in in various ways. Um, and I think that gets back to Corey's point about resources, you know, and that people learn that information in different ways. And so it really has to have, you know, a lot of different formats for a lot of different ways that people kind of absorb and, and bring that information um, into their daily lives. And let's turn for a moment to Winnis, who has a follow-up topic. Yeah, I, I wanted to get um, the perspectives, especially, you know, both Wendy, but also Corey as a parent, you know, we certainly get, get cases where, you know, the patient, the parents have tried a lot of things and they are frustrated with treatments. They read a lot, you know, from others that, you know, it's a topical steroid that does it or maybe don't even use moisturizers. And I think it's hard because, you know, you have practitioners who do say that that's true or you have cases, you have, you know, parents blogs that say those things work. But, you know, clearly the child is sitting in front of us, sometimes even in the hospital with a secondary infection. And I wanna be respectful and respect that they've tried these things and, you know, try to, you know, uh, you know, remain respectful of their, of their perspective, but still sort of guided in a way to, 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 to get their child better. I wonder if you have advice, you know, for, for cases on how to better connect with our patients in that way when they have suffered through so much, you know, and they're, they're, they're tired of the condition clearly, but they're also skeptical of, you know, what we can offer to get them better or really that it's maybe this is not eczema and really they just have to wait it out. I think one thing that might be useful in a conversation with a family is to start to talk a little bit about the risks of not treating eczema 
Um, and we're starting to see a lot of data coming out about comorbidities and some of these downstream risks that come from not getting eczema under control. And I'm not sure that families understand that, you know, that having this chronic inflammation has consequences and we, we need to intervene early to get this under control in order to have kind of the best outcomes for these kiddos. So I think that might be a helpful conversation. Um, uh, you know, legitimately, I think there are some patients that have a lot of trouble with topical steroids. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's something there for sure. And, and certainly like we listen and, and believe parents when, when they say that um, and patients when they say that. I don't think we understand it that well. Um, I don't think it's everybody. It's some subset of patients with eczema that have that experience. And so it's out there and, and maybe it's overblown a little bit in the minds of, of kind of writ large in the community. But I do think that is a thing. And we, we did see that in our survey data that, that Wendy and I um, helped collect for our, our PFDD meeting last year that a significant number of respondents out of 1,300 respondents talked about the steroids not working anymore, you know, working for a time and stopping or, um, you know, just causing more issues than, um, than benefits. So um, I guess that's a, that's a long-winded answer. You know, so on the one side, I would say, like, really help patient, patients and parents understand that we need to treat the eczema. It's really important. And by under-treating it or not, not treating it, there are these larger implications. Um, and then on the other hand, like I do think that there are some patients and, and, um, and families that do see this impact from them that are not positive. Um, and I think we're just, we don't understand that phenomenon very well yet. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll add to it, but I, I do agree with your points, Corey. And, and, and I'll acknowledge, I mean, when is what you raise is a, is a really challenging question. I mean, there definitely are patients and caregivers that feel like, wow, we've been, you know, we've been on this merry-go-round for a really long time and, and it's not slowing down, it's not getting any better and we're not enjoying this in any way um, and, and not really finding, you know, the, the relief that we're, we're getting that we want to get. And so, um, one of the things that I was thinking about with that question, Wynn, is, is the idea that understanding the why the things haven't, may not have worked. I think there's a lot of assumptions that go into, from probably from both sides, you know, to the point, Dawn, that you raised earlier about compliance with different therapies. You know, I'm assuming that part of the reason some things may not have worked is that they may not have been used properly or that they may not have been used for long enough or at, a, at the right frequency. And so it, part of it is perhaps understanding um, what they may have tried and, and what might not have worked, but, but been utilized in the most appropriate way. So is there a path then to say, well, we understand now with that therapy, if you do it this way, you might have better success. Um, so to kind of, you know, back into something that way. But also just uh, perhaps the more, the bigger picture is that, you know, we know a lot more about eczema care than we did, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And so some of these patients that have been, you know, trying different things for, for many, many years now, you know, it's, it's beginning to be a different landscape. It's, it's hopefully going to be a lot better. But even with some of the existing therapies, I think there's a lot more appreciation and um, understanding of, of what they can do and what they can't do, where you can, you know, perhaps finesse things a little bit and, and change things up based on a patient's circumstances or, or what you're seeing clinically in front of you. And so um, it's definitely a difficult conversation. It's, it's not one that is, is easy to have and, and not a one size fits all. But I think what Corey suggested and, and some of the thoughts that I have would be, might be helpful. Thanks, that's very helpful, both of you. Um, before we pivot and talk about research, 
uh, both from the patient side and the provider side. I just wanna take a moment, since we've been talking so much about patient advocacy, to allow both of you to have a couple of minutes to kind of give a, 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 a nice shout out to your you know, respective advocacy groups because um, providers are aware that you guys are great educational resources, but I would like to give you a moment to shine the breadth and depth of what you can offer both patients and providers um, because both of your organizations are quite solid. Sure. Um, if people don't know us, we are uh, a global network of parents and children with primarily moderate to severe eczema. And we are grassroots. We're led by parents. And most of our work is done by parents, including our research initiatives. Uh, we started in 2015 with uh, the help of a, a grant from the Patient-Centered Outcome Research Institute. And that funding really got us started um, and was designed to build the capacity of parents and patients to engage in the research process, to prioritize research topics, to share research, and to really start to push forward a patient-centered research agenda. So those are our roots, and we are very much in that space today. We're larger, um, and uh, we work in a couple of other areas as well. We're really active in... Um, efforts to harmonize outcomes for eczema research and to make them more patient-centered. Uh, we are also, as I mentioned, we do some work with supporting caregivers and families outside of the clinical setting. Uh, we host a podcast ourselves. And in fact, um, Mike co-hosted one of our episodes recently with Dr. Eric Simpson. So we've been sort of uh, uh, passing the baton on podcasts between Pedra and Cheaper. And our podcast focus, uh, focuses on um, eczema science, and it's a conversation between parents and, and experts, a two-way conversation. So check that out if you're interested, eczema breakthroughs. I think those are probably the, the high points, and I'll uh, make sure Wendy has some time to talk about Nia's good work, too. Yeah, thanks so much, Corey. Wendy, the stage is yours for Nia. Sure. Well, and thank you. Appreciate the opportunity to do that. And um, really excited to, to share that, you know, Nia is going to actually have a new um, sort of mission and strategic plan here coming out in, in the next couple of uh, weeks, if not the next month. Um, really focusing, I think, what are our three strengths, you know, which is sort of that building community um, and enhancing knowledge and then sort of using both of those as a leg towards, you know, collective action. And so within the concept of community, it's really all about you know, the voice of many and the and the spirit of many is stronger than the spirit of one. So it's about bringing as many people together as possible to share their lived experience in many ways, whether that's at our uh, patient expo at the summer where they can learn from experts such as yourselves, they can learn from each other um, and they can get new helpful tips and tricks um, or they can share information about their, their lived experience in the form of research, you know, and contribute information to the, um, to not only the greater scientific good, but also to fill gaps in, in just what we know and what we don't know. Then um, that extends to healthcare providers as well. When we think about the eczema community, you know, while Mia is a patient advocacy organization, we definitely recognize and appreciate that, you know, that community includes not only the patients and caregivers, but healthcare providers and researchers. So it's really about bringing everybody together so that we can learn collectively together um, from each other and then share that mutual information. You know, so then under the knowledge tent, it's really all about, you know, developing all of those resources and sharing them in the best way possible. So, you know, much as Corey mentioned, they have podcasts, you know, we have similar, we have webinars, we have other pamphlets and information on our website, different videos, 
um, other resources such as our new um, eczema wise app and to help people sort of understand their eczema a little bit more. We talked about it not being a one size fits all. So this is a way for people to understand their eczema and then use that information to have a conversation um, in a partnership way with their healthcare provider. Um, and then really kind of pulling all that together is the last one, which is that last pillar of ours, which is collective action, you know, taking everyone's um, insights and experience and then leveraging that so that the greater, larger people um, that might not even be connected to the NIA community can benefit from all of that information, whether that's on the advocacy front from a legislative arm or, or whether that's, you know, again, on the research side of things and, or with healthcare providers and, and continuing to promote access and, and optimal outcomes of care. So, you know, really quite a multi-pronged um, approach that we take and, uh, and love doing it. It's wonderful to hear how busy both of your organizations are because there's so much, so much there. And before we um, discuss research, I wanna make sure since we have our resident expert allergist with us that we give him the floor for a moment to be able to add any comments or questions that he has. Bob, take it away. So thanks Don for this opportunity and, and also thanks uh, Jen and Mike for hosting this and really enjoyed uh, meeting both um, uh, Wendy and Corey in this forum. And I really appreciate all your comments um, uh, from, a whole number of different things, and and I want to be able to to um, to see how uh, the allergy community can engage more with both Nia as well as uh, the Parents for Eczema organization, because I think that there's a lot of um, elements of both of you have addressed that are um, highly emphasized during one of our office visits um, uh, from the discussion regarding comorbidities. Uh, to the discussion regarding how the treatment of eczema is more important than just looking at a rash. I always begin the conversation by saying this is more than a rash and this is a whole system that's involved, just like you mentioned, uh, comparing it to diabetes. I mean, it's, it's the gateway to many, many other serious conditions that uh, your child can develop that's all interrelated. And we emphasize a lot of that. We also have a strong sympathy towards uh, concerns regarding um, uh, the use of steroids because we also use a lot of topical steroids from a nasal standpoint as well as from an inhaled standpoint and systemically. So, so we, we oftentimes do understand the, the cumulative impact of, um, of topical steroids. And, and we also look at this, um, just like you mentioned, a, uh, an, an action plan as well. I mean, we give out food allergy action plans, we give out asthma action plans, and it's really um, um, uh, not out of the question and also very much in line with what we do to kind of design this type of um, action plan and also education forum. Larry and I uh, work on a, um, we collaborate on a multidisciplinary atopic dermatitis program uh, through an NEA uh, Pfizer grant. Um, uh, revolving around the concept of shared decision-making with patients. And we actually have our coordinators design uh, a whole education um, module that's divided into sort of bite-sized pieces over a five visit uh, um, program where at each visit, a segment is actually being um, used to kind of use in a multimedia fashion to teach the parents. And when the kids are old enough to also educate the kids, on this as well. So 
So um, it's really um, uh, exciting and um, to listen to both of you talk about sort of the, um, the perspectives of how we can engage um, uh, patients and parents. And I wanted to find out in, in how, uh, in what ways our community of providers and specialists um, can work with uh, both of your respective organizations in to strengthen our ties with not just the providers, also our patients with your organization, as well as how your organization can then help bring our two specialties more aligned together. Just like you mentioned, Corey, that sometimes this is a full-time job where you're having to decipher through five different medications that different providers can be presenting. And that's actually one of the impetuses why Larry and I ended up working together and seeing the patients together under the, in the same time. Sometimes the two of us are in the room together. So we, you, the patients aren't overburdened with this exhaustive list of things that we are actually coming through with a cohesive message. So how your organizations can help bring our two specialties together to better serve the patients and parents' needs. Well, I can go ahead and start and hopefully I can remember all of the, the different questions there. But in terms of, um, you know, how uh, the allergy specialist can get involved with, uh, with Nia as an example, um, one of the things that we have uh, as a resource for certainly for providers, but it, it is a resource for patients as well to be able to connect with providers that have expertise in eczema is something called our eczema provider finder. And so it's a way for you know, members of your specialty and all specialties, really, you know, whether it's even primary care to, you know, basically put their name into our uh, database, uh, which is really helpful for different patients across the country, you know, to be able to um, utilize and resource if they're looking for uh, an eczema, an, a new eczema provider, or if they're looking for a, a different specialist to maybe treat some of the comorbidities that they might be experiencing. Um, and it's incredibly important that we continue to build out um, the providers that are included in there because, you know, it's just, we, we know that not everybody can be close to an academic center where there is necessarily, you know, some of the even subspecialties, you know, I know with Dr. Eichenfeld, you know, he's a pediatric dermatologist. Well, not everybody can have access to a pediatric dermatologist. So how can we, you know, make sure we're getting patients connected with, um, with good providers, you know, that really have a, a strong history and knowledge of treating eczema. So that's number one. Um, but maybe then taking your last question about, you know, ways that patient advocacy groups can help bring some of the specialists together. You know, I think that's where Nia has already a strong foundation is going to continue to build on that. And that was for our QC. You know, we're really already trying to bring together, recognizing that um, bringing together, not necessarily diverse perspectives, but bringing together, you know, the, the complement of perspectives about what good care looks like in the eczema space is so important. And so we're trying to continue to do that and, and bring in um, additional uh, members of all those specialties to contribute not only to developing that curriculum and expanding it, but also disseminating it. So there are opportunities potentially in the future for, you know, once the curriculum continues to be updated and established for, you know, really any provider to kind of take that off the shelf, take it to their institution, share it with the rest of their colleagues and continue to kind of spread the good word. So those might be, you know, kind of taking the bookend questions that you pose there, that might be what I would suggest. Yeah, and I'll just add a couple of quick things. I mean, great, great question and wonderful to hear about all the terrific things you're doing down in San Diego with this multidisciplinary approach. I think that's fantastic. Hopefully that becomes the gold standard and the norm everywhere. I mean, that would be, that would be ideal. 
Um, I would say that, um, you know, we're here as a resource for you. Um, so please send people to our peer-to-peer -peer support program, send people to our Facebook group where we share research often daily, um, especially kind of practical research. Um, I would also say, you know, we'd love to partner with you on research ideas. And we're especially interested in this chicken and egg relationship between food allergy and eczema and how we can kind of untangle that and learn more about it. There's such a huge overlap between um, kids with eczema and kids with food allergy. And I think we're, it's really exciting um, right now to learn exactly what that relationship is. Um, and then finally, I think we can actually learn a lot from, from you. I, I feel like um, the approach to asthma could be translated to eczema and it would really improve things. I, I think our approach to managing asthma with, with asthma um, action plans, with allergy action plans, there's a much, uh, there's, there's a history there that could be translated over to the, to the eczema space. So I think there's some opportunities for all of us to learn from you as well. Thank you both for your very um, helpful and wise comments. <laughs> now we'll move on in the, in the last um, section of the, of the, this podcast and make sure our webinar and make sure that we have time to focus on research. As providers, I don't want us to presume or assume that we know why research is important to patients. Um, and we as providers have our own list of why we think research is important to advance science and patient care. What are your opinions? We'll have Corey go first from the patient perspective or the family unit perspective of why research is important. Yeah, I, I think um, I love seeing patients at the PEDRA conference and, and AAD and these other fora because you see that you just see them light up. They're so excited about research. It's such a beacon of hope for people. And I think it's really inspiring to see people who are so dedicated and smart and um, talented dedicating their lives to this. So wanted to just give that shout out and say that I think research, when you're in the throes of managing a really difficult condition, it can feel like this, this kind of beacon of hope for you and, um, you know, an inspiration. In terms of what um, patients and parents uh, care about, that's a long discussion um, in terms of like research topics, maybe another podcast that could be interesting. Um, We've done some work uh, prioritizing research topics with parents. I know um, other groups like the James Lind Alliance have done a ton of work on that, looking at eczema priorities for research. So I think, um, you know, there are ways to kind of systematically gather those high priority topics from the patient and, and parent perspective, but they tend to be practical questions. Um, does this or that work for improving my child's eczema? And by improving, we mean those high priority outcomes for children, children which is things like itch reduction, uh, sleep improvement, things like that. So those are all, I think, um, issues and outcomes that are important to patients and families. Uh, well, I think, you know, Corey hit it on the head in terms that, you know, first and foremost, you know, research is hope. You know, research is that thought that tomorrow might be better than today. And so, you know, it is that, that ever, you know, present, um, you know, light in the distance that says, okay, you know, if we keep marching in this direction, we're going to have that next aha moment that's going to hopefully make things better, hopefully for me, but if not for me, hopefully for someone else down the road so that they don't have to suffer as I have. Um, but just to take it to a really high, you know, view, uh, I think what I've heard the most about, you know, how patients have thought about research is that, 
um, it, it's what will work best for me. And I think Corey really hit on that in terms of like outcomes and that those outcomes might be different for different individuals. We're learning more about, you know, the different, um, you know, different uh, sort of phenotypes and endotypes of eczema. And the more we continue to explore that, you know, it will, it will help us be able to get to that, you know, if it's not personalized, maybe a little bit more precise in terms of our approaches that we use for eczema. But that really is it at the end of the day. It's what's going to work best for me. But as Corey said, that's a lot to unpack. You know, there's a lot of things that are very practical in there, but there's a, that's a composite clinical, environmental, behavioral, um, personal, you know, there, there's a lot in there. And um, some of those questions I'm sure come up in the context of, of your office visits, but fundamentally that's what it boils down to is, you know, I'm, I'm a patient, I'm here, or my child is here. I want to know what's going to work best for him or her um, or myself and, and how can we get there as quickly as possible. Is research participation in eczema something that the average patient or family unit looks for when searching for a specialist? Um, you know, I, I, I don't know the answer to that question. I, I haven't necessarily um, talked to a lot of, of our community members about that specifically, but my gut reaction tells me it's probably no, you know, that there isn't necessarily a strong look to research, at least not initially, you know, the initially it's more probably about getting getting some of that care. Um, Corey may have some different perspectives from, from her community, given that her community member is very focused on research. Um, but what we, we know is that our community members have a strong interest in research, you know, so whether they utilize that um, at some point in their care journey to begin, you know, having more detailed and in-depth conversations, I, I think that that is probably more likely, but having seeking someone out, unless you're looking for someone that is, um, you know, going to have participation in clinical trials and you really want to try to provide or, or center on, you know, providers that might have those particular skills. Um, I, I don't think research is the first thing that comes to mind. I think it's more, I want to get better. Um, and then, you know, research factors into it and in, over the longer term. But Corey, I, I'm curious of your thoughts on that. I think some people do. I know I do. I look at the, you know, the resumes and the publication history of folks, and I, I try and find someone who is interested in eczema and who is publishing research on it, but I don't think that's everybody. Um, I think what my sense is uh, what parents are looking for is a provider who is going to listen to them, um, who is going to care, um, and is going to engage in that conversation about their child and what they've done so far and what they could try next. Um, I know Bob has a question about research, but while we're on this topic, specifically about your patient advocacy organizations, how would a provider who wants to engage in research through NIA or through um, your organization, Corey, how do they get connected to you or show interest that they'd like to participate? Yeah, so if you want to partner with Global Parents for Eczema Research, we want to hear from you. We would love to hear from you. We'll be excited to hear from you. Um, that's that's what we do. Uh, we really look to partner with researchers from day one. So we're, we're sort of less uh, enthusiastic about uh, joining something on the end and, and sort of um, you know rubber stamping it or something like that. We really like to partner from the get-go with researchers on, on thinking about the study, designing the study, selecting the outcomes, helping with recruitment, helping with dissemination of findings, we have that ability and those that expertise and we feel like it ends up being a stronger study um, and that we we all kind of uh, benefit from from that and learn from each other in the process. The other so way they can uh, they can contact you on the internet through the website um, in a question box or how would you suggest? 
Yeah, you can contact us through our webpage. You can email me, Corey, at Parents for Eczema Research. I think the other big opportunity that I'll mention, though, is that, you know, like Nia, we're always at, um, we're always at the eczema-focused meetings. Mm -hmm. So, you know, hit us up. We got a booth, you know, set some time aside to talk to us. We always present at the AD workgroup meeting at PIDRA. Um, so there's a lot of opportunities to like bat around ideas and talk to us about, you know, ideas that you might have for research. Thanks. And Wendy, how about the NEA? How do we connect? Yeah, very, very similarly. Um, you know, we're, we'd be thrilled to hear from you. There's a, you know, no loss of great ideas out there that, um, that we could work in partnership on. And I think just to echo what Corey said, you know, that's really you know, where, you know, the, the icing is on the cake, you know, being able to, you know, get in on the ground floor and work together to bring an idea to fruition. So, you know, can connect with us through our regular info at National Eczema, research at National Eczema, or through me directly, you know, Wendy at National Eczema. So any of those channels would work. But also just from a more practical sense, we realize that, you know, we can't participate or work with you on every study. You know, the research in eczema spaces is exploding right now. And so, you know, just from a from a bandwidth perspective, you know, we also recognize that a lot of really great research might not necessarily have uh, our partnership and involvement, but that doesn't mean that we can't share it with them and try to um, sort of disseminate that information to our community members. And so through our people engaged in eczema research program, we have a way to publish, um, whether it's through our e-newsletters or on our website, you know, different clinical trials that are available that you might be running, other research studies that you're looking to recruit for that might need members um, potentially from the eczema community with that may different um, inclusion or, or uh, different inclusion criteria. Um, but then also, you know, we're really expanding our, our survey research program. So if you're looking to, you know, potentially um, engage people and uh, want to do more uh, sort of behavioral or population-based research, we have a mechanism for that as well. Um, so, you know, we'd love to partner, but we can also help disseminate as well. Thanks. Thank you. And we'll give the floor to our friend and colleague, Bob, who wants to ask another question about research before we wrap up. So um, I really enjoy hearing um, both of your perspectives on, on how your organizations can get involved with research. And one of the things that I want to kind of um, get your perspectives on is we kind of talked about clinical trials, we talked about uh, practical research. And one issue, one other area would be care delivery system and quality improvement type of um, studies. And, um, and, and one of the things that we're actually looking at, collecting metrics in our uh, multidisciplinary AD program, are sort of looking at um, whether this care delivery model is actually making some of the impacts for patients that it's intending to make. And um, Corey, just like you mentioned, I mean, hopefully this type of collaborative model can expand and, and proliferate across the nation. But the only way to do that is by showing some, um, demonstrating some metrics. Uh, we have to see that patients are actually enjoying this, parents are, are finding this valuable, and we're meeting some, not just provider endpoints, but also um, patient-oriented uh, uh, patient and patient-reported outcomes, and also their experience um, um, matters from this, that there is some improvements on this by engaging in this type of um, uh, care delivery uh, system. So, um, so I wanna see whether, I mean, there's interest from your respective organizations 
in kind of partnering up with this kind of care delivery model assessment or metrics types of um, research, as well as whether uh, both of you have interest to look at some of the preliminary data that we have collected and we have uh, analyzed and is sort of serving as a foundation to get inputs from both your organizations to looking at what other metrics or how, um, uh, what are some of the other ways that we can look at this and um, where this program is sort of in its um, beginning stages and, and how additional metrics and, and other things will be of interest from a patient advocacy organization and uh, patient perspective that we can add to um, the evaluation of this care delivery model. First of all, uh, really interesting question. And, and, and I suspect actually that some of these care delivery questions about how to organize care, how to support patients, et cetera, um, are going to deliver really high gains in terms of things like uh, improved outcomes for patients. I think that um, there's a lot of room for improvement there. And I think it's really important research to be done. Um, certainly we're interested in those questions as well. We're looking at, um, you know, a couple of different approaches to, to do that. I mean, with only 50% of patients reporting adhering to doctor prescribed, uh, medication recommendations, I mean, there's, there's a lot of room there to try, to try different things and see if we can't, um, get better outcomes. So that's number one. Um, so yes, interested in those topics as well. Um, number two, the, the type of question that, you, that you're mentioning, that sort of getting input on what you're doing and what outcomes and how to, you know, design the program in a way that's uh, going to work for patients. To me, that sounds like a great role for like a patient advisory council within your institution. And there's, um, there's, there's uh, resources for setting those up well. Um, I'm forgetting the name of it right now, but there's a great group down in Long Beach that does this for hospitals. Um, that could really help you with that and get you that kind of ongoing input that would really strengthen your program and help you select outcomes. So that's just a, a resource that I would look into because uh, you're going to want, you know, I think patients that really understand what you're doing. Yeah, well, I would agree with what Corey said in terms of the patient advisory board. You know, as you were talking about the, um, you know, having different patient reported outcomes, you know, what, what occurred to me was that, you know, you weren't necessarily just talking about like clinical outcomes, you were talking about satisfaction and, you know, trust and, and feeling like, you know, the whole care experience was, you know, more beneficial for, um, you know, kind of across the board. And I, I really just, A, commend you for that, but B, think it's, that's where it's so important to make sure that as you're thinking through some of these things, you're really getting, you know, from that patient and caregiver perspective, you know, what would be the most important? What is the best way to ask that question? You know, even from a concept perspective, you know, what would be the best way to address it, to capture it? And then to, you know, find a way to kind of follow that up over the long term, as well as get ideas for future growth. Um, so, you know, really commend the idea to, you know, continue to build this out. And, you know, and from a care delivery perspective, you know, that's really incredibly important to um, make sure that a lot of the efforts that, you know, everyone on this call and, um, and, and elsewhere around the country and around the world is doing day in and day out is having, you know, the end results, not only from a clinical perspective, but also, you know, from a well-being perspective of patients. And so just really look forward to uh, potentially talking with you further about that and, uh, and seeing where that, uh, your concepts can go. Thank you. Well, thanks. What a wonderful way to end a great um, discussion this evening about the fact that it's really patients and providers together 
who make science and medicine better. I think that's um, why we all practice medicine. So thanks for that reminder. And I personally enjoy spending time with our patient advocacy groups because I learn a lot. So just to wrap up tonight, thank you so much for joining PEDRA's um, educational session tonight on the importance of patient advocacy and involvement with regards to care of moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. And I want to say a direct thank you to Wendy Speth Bagolka from the National Eczema Association and also to Corey Capoza from the Global Parents for Eczema Research Foundation. So thank you, ladies, both very much. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you very much. Special thanks to our guests, Wendy Smith Bogolka from the National Eczema Association and Corey Capoza from Global Parents for Eczema Research. I'd also like to thank our host, Dr. Don Davis, and our panelists, Dr. Larry Eichenfeld, Dr. Bob Gang, and Dr. Winnis Tom. Thank you to Pfizer for providing grant funding for this series. This concludes our series on systemic therapies for moderate to severe atopic dermatitis in children. You can find the whole series of webinars and podcasts online at pedraresearch.org forward slash education. Be sure to follow us at Pedra Research on Twitter for new announcements about upcoming programs. Future podcasts are produced and edited by me, Jen Dawson, and Mike Siegel. Music is provided by Pixabay.